all corners of the globe to your ears. It's the Midnight Movie Cowboys. Sometimes informative, sometimes controversial, but always unpredictable. It's the Midnight Movie Cowboys podcast with your hosts, Hunter, John, and Stu. And now, on with the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Midnight Movie Cowboys I'm Hunter, and with me is John. Say hello, John. Hello. And before we get into our topic this week, do you have any junk you want to rip out, without, uh, John? Uh, let me see here. Uh, let's see what I got. Um, I'll try to find things that aren't controversial. I'll just go ahead and do uh, mine while you get yours together. You go ahead and do that. You do I that. just have one shining jewel here that I want to recommend to all of our listeners because it has it features a friend of the show death wish 4k from kino lorber yeah, yeah featuring yeah. friend of the show paul talbot on the commentary Paul talbot all gangster and everything yo yeah like as mike malloy put it he has harpooned his white whale you know it's a big deal <laughs> Congrats to Paul for getting to do a Death Wish commentary. We know he's done a million of these for Bronson movies, but he's never done one for freaking Death Wish. It's sad. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm crying tears of joy because we we brought him into the podcast world. That's oh, right. Like, oh, what, 10 years ago? With that was, the yeah, it was forever show. ago. I don't even know. That was his first podcast ever. He wasn't even <laughs> doing commentaries. Then. Yeah. Set, you know, we set him off to bigger things. Um, right. But that's all I got. Is that it just, for you? I wanted, yeah, I just okay, wanted that's to tell fine. our listeners to check it out. Well, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's the highest possible recommendation we give, especially if you like that film. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anybody watching or listening to us that has not seen Death Wish. But <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not my favorite Bronson movie, but it's, uh, it's pretty good. I mean, it's kind of essential. You know, yeah, you have to watch so. it whether you like it or not. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what I got. Um, I uh, I got a Max Allen Collins book of all things, uh, Quarry's X, which uh, Eric Zaldivar, friend of the show and sometimes uh, co-host, he um, he told me about it that in it is a satire of a actor who is probably very blatantly Robert Conrad, and uh, he's got him as a closet homosexual who's <laughs> just working on a movie set or something like that. I haven't read it yet, but uh, it sounds pretty interesting. So it sounded funny, like. Eric said it was it was hysterical. I don't think it was based on any real incident between Max Allen Collins and any actor because I don't think he'd worked on movies in the seventies. But I might be wrong on that. But it's one of those hard case crime editions. Has a nice cover. Looks like a retro fifties paperback. You know how it goes. Uh, Tarzan Omnibus. You can tell I hit second in Charles because uh, this got traded in. This is a, a collection of all the Dark Horse Tarzan limited series of the nineties. Most of them I missed out on because I just wasn't buying comic books then. I was a newspaper reporter, very serious with my life. And if you were seen with a comic book and you were a grown man, you'd be shunned. They they sew a letter on your clothing, you know, geek or something like that. I don't know. What do you watch? Uh, nowadays, Paw Patrol? Like, do you watch Paw yeah, Patrol? Oh my God. You know, <laughs> what, what, man, why you got to get on me for not liking the woke? Um, this is uh, something I found called George Washington's First War. It's all about his battles and such. My uh, ancestor, George Grace, died at the Battle of Brandywine. So I'm kind of got this to kind of maybe get a feel for what's going on and uh, what what happened in George Washington's early life that uh, made him combat ready and ready to be our first president, probably still our best president because he went back to normal life after leaving this crap. <laughs> um, 
And then I got I found an interesting Tarzan thing called the unauthorized Tarzan. Apparently in the 60s, Charlton Publications, who gave us some some pretty cool Steve Ditko comics in the 60s, they uh they publish an unauthorized Tarzan comic. Um, because Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated sent him a cease and desist probably after about a year, because I think only Gold Key had the legit rights to Tarzan. And uh so they put it out, it's a different style. There was a respected uh, artist Joe Gill did the artwork for it, but it looks pretty cool. It looks like he did like literal adaptations from the uh, early books. So um, looking forward to digging into some comic book reading. I've uh, been doing so much serious reading, it's kind of eating my brain. Also, I got uh, I'm a big fan of Pearls Before Swine, so I got uh, this is one one of their books. I'm only in this for me, so uh, it's probably my favorite humor strip in the newspapers. Uh, you know, Garfield would be a very very distant second, I think. And then Family Circus would be third. So there you go. Very good. Very good. Well, speaking mm-hmm. of cartoons, uh, this week we are talking about anime. But hold on. Yeah. I said, John, let's talk about Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Let's talk about a good right. Miyazaki film. Let's talk about, um, you know, one his great epic fantasy film. It's it's basically Dune, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> and right. uh, and but uh, you know, as we were talking, uh, you know, you said I'm going to watch Warriors of the Wind, the the New World Entertainment right. version of it when it came <laughs> to America. And I was going, you know, New World did a cool anime. Uh, they did they did a thing with uh, an anime called Angel's Egg, and they called it In the Aftermath, which was a much more drastic. Uh, you know, import import job, but um, we went. You know, let's instead of just focusing on Nausicaa, we can talk about that and talk about Warriors of the Wind. But let's look at the New World anime. Let's look at kind of these two examples of weird, uh, kind of altered versions of anime that come over. And uh, you know, I remember. You know, I was not around for Warriors of the Wind or any of that stuff in the eighties. Um, right. I was around for stuff like power Rangers where they brought over super Sentai and would reshoot stuff with American actors to make it an American show. I had no clue when I was a kid that that was a Japanese show. I did recognize <laughs> that. Oh, it's like, it's like, it's kind of reminds me of a Godzilla movie a little bit. Like it, it did. I did have that right. vibe, but I didn't make connect the dots and go, this is a Japanese show that's been repurposed. Uh, but a show that I was very aware was Japanese was Dragon Ball Z, which was hugely right. popular when I was a, an early, late, you know, late middle school, early teenage college, uh, high school years. I mean, that show was massive. But, you know, I was very aware of how it was changed because a lot of people talked about it because the music was different, the voice acting was different, and, it you know, some of the stuff was censored. I remember reading stuff in the newspaper about uh, how parents would buy the manga for their kids and would be shocked that you see Goku's penis, you know. <laughs> so, so, um, so, you know, there's a lot of conversation around how these versions are different they're you know but a lot of anime fans they they're really mad they don't they want nothing but the pure product from japan you know with subtitles uh they don't want anything else but like i was watching on the in the aftermath blu-ray uh there was a guy on there talking about uh 
Angel's Egg, and he brought up Warriors of the Wind, and he goes, when I was a kid, he goes, he goes, anime fans talk about this film like it's some great crime, but I'm quite fond of it. You know, when I was a kid, that's how I watched it, and I didn't even know there was another version. And uh, yeah, same within the aftermath. He goes, I just had no clue. Uh, so yeah. you know, were you aware of these movies? How were they kind of viewed back then? Uh, Warriors of the Wind. Uh, my brother, we went to a video store on 99 cent day and he, everybody in the family rented their personal choice. Cause I think he got to keep them for three days or a week or something. It was some crazy, it was a crazy way for a store to rent out its uh, library selection. You know, the, the back stuff, the old movies. And um, my brother picked warriors of the wind and I could tell it was a Japanese anime just from the box, but just that anime style. Um, but I, I only watched like maybe 10 or 20 minutes of it. But I I think I had picked up, there was an English, okay, there was a real big launch of manga back in the mid 80s by different comic book companies, Lone Wolf and Cub and Kamui and Area 88. And I was really into like Asian pop culture stuff, simply from the Kung Fu films and the Godzilla movies and the superhero stuff in the 70s, like Ultraman and all that. And um I uh, I bought all those comic books and I bought the first issue of of a comic called Nausicaa Valley of the Wind and I and they had the whole essay and this was and I think they said it was cut by Roger Corman turned into Warriors of the Wind so I kind of knew that okay when these things come over here because there is no real adult commercial market for Japanese cartoons which we called Japanimation back then yeah I remember that <laughs> Yeah. And it's like there was no realistic market. So they would cut them down for children to watch or uh, market them as children's videos. So I, I did watch some of Warriors of the Wind. I said, this actually looks pretty interesting. It's um, it's more interesting than this. Uh, I didn't watch cartoons anymore because I was like 13 or 14. And I'm like too old for this crap. You know, uh, back then, uh, my generation, Gen X, early Gen X was very, we were pushed very quickly to grow up. Like you, you needed to put away the the toys you need to donate them and you, you know uh no cartoons stop watching you're allowed to watch bugs bunny and that's about it you know and um i i remember really digging it what i saw but i didn't watch the whole thing and then years later a very popular item in the late 90s was a fan sub edition of nasca valley of the wind and i think i watched that and then I, of course in recent years you you can watch the Miyazaki stuff anywhere, but it was just a, it was a very different market in the eighties. Like people forget my neighbor Totoro, I think Troma was the first company to release it over here. And the reviews and like the various critic circles was like, Oh, the Japanese and their juvenile cartoons. And <laughs> it's like, you know, cause Disney was considered king of animation, no matter what. It's like yeah. every Disney movie was promoted as a classic. Thus, it was a classic. Crit critics probably didn't even sit through them and just said, oh, it's another Disney classic here. It's wonderful. And um, and I just thought, oh, this is childish garbage. And who the hell over the age of eight would even watch this stuff? Because I outgrew Disney cartoons when I was young. Like, I think Fox and the Hound was the one I didn't go see. And I just didn't care. And, you know, it's I don't like, think okay, anybody so on cared about product. Fox and the Hound. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, uh, it's funny because I found that on DVD the other day at a library sale. And I said, well, okay, I don't think Kato has seen this. My son has, has seen it. So it's like, I'll just grab it just for the Disney shelf. But I don't even know if it's any good. I and, don't uh, I remember being a kid and thinking it was disappointing, you know. Disappointing, um, yeah. But not I, enough, I, not I, enough I, of those uh, Broadway musical uh, numbers. No, but, you know, it's based on the source material it's based on is extremely dark. Um, mm hmm 
And uh, I think I was familiar with the story and I was going, how did Disney make a film out of this? And then watching it and going, it just seemed like they didn't know where to go with it or what to do with it. And that film was made during right. a very uh, troubled period at Disney animation. You know, that's around when they were doing mm -hmm. stuff like black cauldron and uh, you know, that was when like Kirby Don goes bananas. Bluth, that's when Don, Don Bluth, like, basically took half the animation department with him like he was right up right and then he split with a but with the most talented people um hmm. so you know that was a that was not a great time i think you know people like tim burton worked on fox and the hound you know like it had a lot yeah, of yeah yeah because i think they were grabbing any animator they could so you get tim burton and you know um the the thing is i in recent years i watched the great mouse detective which i'd never seen and uh, even though when I was a little kid, I read some of those uh, Basil of Baker Street books, whatever they were called. And um, and I watched it. I thought it was it was pretty decent. It was fun. Yeah. It when was I was like, a kid, I know, loved that one. I, I like Sherlock Holmes stuff. So when I saw that, I saw that one. At, they brought it back in theaters. Um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed watching it when I was a kid. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. If you're a Sherlock Holmes buff, which I am, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a blast. But yeah. uh, but Japanese cartoons um it's funny because uh they they were treated with like such respect in japan and if you mention that to anybody over here even serious film people or even serious anime buffs they were like oh, they were yawning in your face and all that stuff there was a real almost like i i hate i hesitate to say race infused but i think it was like in the minds of a lot of people they're still fighting world war ii so there's no or made in japan was a slur so it's like they didn't want to accept that japan had made something that of quality that, yes, they're thinking Godzilla movies, and they're not going to bother watching a Kurosawa film or whatever. So, yeah, you know, there was this kind of. You're absolutely right, because uh, I know, you know, I I know people who specifically like if someone's from Japan, they're like, you know, yeah, we defeated them. Why are we talking about them? You know, um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We dropped the we dropped the bombs on them. <laughs> Fat man, a little boy. Like, you know, just just dismissive of of that yeah. of anything from their their culture yeah I've, I've definitely encountered that you know i'm not normally one to promote those narratives but i've seen it firsthand so i'm with <laughs> like oh, yeah. i experienced it in the 80s you would get a snobbishness from american fans about everything anything from japan godzilla movies weren't good enough because they weren't stop motion like harryhausen harryhausen is the king of all special effects yeah you know, you know it's just like yeah like in fact like you know harryhausen i know looked down at um the kaiju films and stuff and now there's like a real strong fandom around that stuff but i do remember when it was like that's cheap trash like if you like yeah. real monster movies you watch seventh voyage of sinbad you watch you know <laughs> mighty joe young or whatever you know you, you're not watching like god so that's a guy in a suit you know any idiot can do that yeah the narrative has been flipped because people started to realize that the same people that worked on the godzilla movies Worked on Kurosawa films. Yeah. So it's like... Yeah. And the, the people that worked on the Harry Hauser movies didn't really work on anything else of quality. So in the Harry Hauser movies were a lot cheaper than people realized. Like they mm -hmm. were filmed in Malta on the cheap and he was kind of screwed over by his producer. He didn't really give him a lot of resources. And it's just like, you know, he's doing all these... And he didn't really... Supposedly he wasn't as generous with the uh, credit to his assistants or whatever, but... Um, I know that Harry Hausen personally like hated Godzilla because Godzilla was more popular than anything he created. And yes. it's like, well, you know, Ray, you should have 
you should have signed off for some Cyclops toys or, uh, you know, Medusa figures or <laughs> posters yeah. or something. Harryhausen's the only, he's probably the only auteur effects guy, you know, where mm-hmm. it, he's the auteur. It's not, you don't, who, nobody, you know, it's, it's pretty, you'd have to be only like Joe Dante can name who directed like <laughs> this movie, right. you know, like nobody knows, nobody cares. Like I couldn't tell you who directed Clash of the Titans. I don't know. Um, it's, uh, it's, I, I can't remember. I can't recall it, at it, all. It's a Harryhausen film. Uh, but, but yeah, like you said, you know, the, the actors and all that, all that other stuff was kind of secondary. Um, and the effects are great. Like Jason and the Argonauts, that skeleton fight is is crazy love it i don't know i don't know how you like to this day i'm like that is so difficult to pull off um i love valley of the guanji with the allosaurus going into the church yeah it's one of the coolest and he gets the light and everything great it's it's fantastic to look at it's yeah it's great i really enjoy that one no um yeah the the but you know and i'm not you know we're not poo-pooing harryhausen it's just more like having a realistic vision of it but but yeah, I I do remember right. a time where it was unfashionable to like Godzilla movies, and uh, whereas I feel like it's kind of flipped. Like I don't you know, I don't know anybody younger than Gen X who's over the moon for Harryhausen. But um, they don't care. I have a lot yeah. of film students who love Godzilla movies. They love kaiju films. They like Common Rider. They like Ultraman. They're going <laughs> to see Shin Ultraman in the theater. You know. Yeah. Um, they love that stuff and the Harryhausen stuff. They're like, yeah, it's fine. If they've heard right. of it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, also because of the limitations of stop motion and how much, how long it took to do those scenes. The thing is about the Japanese stuff, you get a more satisfying visual experience because they give you a lot of action, yeah, a lot of effects. That's true. And it, which affects it would take Harryhausen five years to do that on film because and... of the way he'd, he'd I think too with the Japanese stuff, you have more of a complete creative package, because yeah, you know, on a Godzilla film, you've got Ashiro Honda, great director, trained with the best of the best as far as directing goes. You've got you know mm-hmm. Tomoyuki Tanaka, you know, producing. You've got uh, what's his Eiji Subaraya. Weirdly, did not know mm-hmm. he was a convert to Catholicism. That was weird. <laughs> oh, oh so now you're you're now you're in the church of Subaraya. yeah exactly <laughs> uh but i was like i looked that up and i was very strange you don't see a lot of japanese catholics um but uh yeah. you have ag Subaraya doing the special effects and while they're not harry in effects they have a charm of their own they're fun to look at and uh you know you don't usually have like a guy as talented as honda directing the actors in a uh, right Harryhausen picture. Um, do you think some of that maybe, I, I don't know because I didn't read famous monsters of film land, but was there, was this, mm-hmm. were some of these narratives coming from the the school of Ackerman? Like, you know, maybe the yeah. Harryhausen was better and these Godzilla films aren't as good. August, that, August were going to tell me that Ackerman didn't like Godzilla films. Okay, like, so that explains uh, it. And, that's that's why nobody younger than Gen X. That's why people younger than Gen, yeah. younger than Gen X don't have any of that. Ackerman was all about Lugosi, Karloff, thirties, forties horror when he was young and seeing that stuff in a theater. He didn't care about 
um, Godzilla movies, Japanese films in general. He just, just didn't care about any of that stuff. Now, some of his contributors, like Jeff Rovin, I think were big fans. Uh, Randy Palmer may have been some of those those guys. Uh, but no, Ackerman didn't give a hoot about Godzilla. Neither did the editor of Cine Fantastique, Fred S. Clark. He didn't like those films either. Hmm. It was, and it's because in their heads they were still fighting World War II, you know, mentally, yeah. and you know, never forgave him for Pearl Harbor, you know, that sort of thing. It's true. It's true. You know. Um, yeah, it's it, it's really weird. It's bizarre, and I maybe that extended into the animation thing. I know that in the eighties, often the only way to see this stuff like subtitled, um, you know, it didn't, I don't know if it actually hit the art house theaters, but it would be guys like James Hudnall would acquire tapes from Japan or Laserdisc and show them at conventions. RIP. Um, <laughs> yeah. Rest uh, in peace. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> the way you would have watched this was warriors of the wind and the, the way you would have watched Nausicaa is by watching warriors of the wind <laughs> yeah you know warriors of the wind it's it's definitely more it kind of takes that material and it makes it more like a more simple <sighs> kids adventure film i would say um mm -hmm. like you know it's got about a good 26 minutes stripped out of it um i think it's there's less nuance it's a little more like uh a little more like a straight out and out adventure movie it doesn't have the sort of um meditation on uh nature that tends to be in uh Miyazaki's work um well to be honest there was no market for anything like Miyazaki no in the 80s I, and I think Corman knew it they probably got this on a cheap deal um I watched a video where they they talked about the guys who bought um the film that became uh the the, the other film we're going to talk about and they were saying that basically when these films were shopped over here in the film markets, they would get turned down by every studio. And then Corman would just buy them for nothing or or the post Corman New World Pictures would buy them for nothing, get some crazy cut rate deal on them just because just to get rid of them, you know, just to get them over here. And um, those guys probably looked at it, said, well, kids aren't going to sit through stuff with this type of pacing. Probably true, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, um, this is the yeah. MTV generation. And uh, kids now, I think, are more patient with this stuff because um, I think almost every kid in my son's class liked My Neighbor Totoro. Like, it's their favorite movie. He even had an elementary school teacher that loved it. And it's just like, I could not imagine in the 80s any child sitting through these things patiently. And kids today seem to have more of a patience for the animation. Maybe they're studying the colors or there's an advantage to watching this stuff when you're very young. But um kids in the 80s would not have put up with the kind of long stretches of zen-like shots of the planet and you know our heroes flying on their contraptions and this this kind of that's something i realized because I, I watched nausicaa originally we were going to do the show two months ago let's let's just talk inside baseball here yeah. um we we're gonna do this two months ago and i watched the original japanese version with the disney dubbing and then um i think it was disney that dubbed it right they, then they do all that stuff and then um then I watched the Warriors of the Wind uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And um, it's funny because it's designed the way the Corman people cut it. Uh, it's it's more palatable to the American taste. You can see the action, the designs, all that stuff. The pacing of the original Japanese version would, would not have worked for anybody in the 80s. I, I repeat myself, but it's just true. And a lot of people don't understand that. 
they don't understand this is a business. Yeah. You're trying to get something down to the money you're going to make. In Japan, they were conditioned to watching stuff that was slow because Tezuka was big. He was worshipped like a god over there. Yeah. Um, all the other anime geniuses or whatever, whatever you want to call them, auteurs, um, the audience was conditioned to watching stuff for teenagers, adults, and they would actually sit through this and have no problem with it. They respected the pacing because they, they just don't have an issue with that. They uh, Japanese films, I've noticed, have a different structure, um, different sto storytelling techniques. A Japanese samurai film might have all its action in the first 10 minutes and nothing for an hour. And their audiences accept this. They have no problem with that structure. Yeah, I think with young people, too, there's also just more of a acceptance of anime, too. Like, I think they're really interested in it. Um, it's really popular. It's more popular than it's ever been. I mean, you know, you go to the I know this. these are two different mediums, but if you go to Barnes and Noble, the manga section is enormous. It's, you know, the comic it's stunning. The comic section is tiny. Um but whenever I go to Barnes and Noble, the manga section's huge, and you see tons of people milling around, pulling off books and reading them and checking them out. And, you know, it's one of the more populated areas of the store. Um, and the two go hand in hand, obviously. Um, it's but, probably uh, the only reason we still have Barnes and Noble. I'll be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. And they, they even have tie-in uh, model kits and toys. Like, yeah. you can see, like, Totoro imports for, like, a 300 bucks. I mean, they, they wouldn't carry that stuff if it didn't move. You know? they, they've got, like, little Studio Ghibli, like, stands in the middle of the store. Like, there's tons of, like, anime statues and models there. It's almost becoming a weeb store. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, well, I got, I got my son a ton of, like... Um, uh, Totoro stuff because he loved that movie when he was little and uh, so I, I would get him stuff but it'd be like the bootleg Chinatown knockoffs of all the official Japanese stuff because if you if you well we really have a little Saigon it's actually a little Vietnamese town but um, I'd go over there and you'd have all the imports from China the knockoffs of the the Totoro lamp and the water fountain and the piggy bank and the plushie and all that stuff so it's like okay well so we get to enjoy our uh our weebiness uh, on the cheap here with the yeah. Chinese knockoffs because the Japanese imports are way too overpriced. It's like, nah, I ain't yeah. got that type of bu budget going for me. No, you know? yeah, I remember getting like one Gundam model kit when I was a kid, and it was it, it was way too much of my grocery store yeah. paycheck. You know, I was like, nah, not doing this. Um, right. Uh, but you know, Miyazaki has a quote about the goal of his works that I really <laughs> like. I think you'll appreciate this. He says he wants his work to quote offer a sense of liberation to present day young people who in this suffocating overprotective and managed society find their path to self-reliant independent blocked independence blocked and have become neurotic wow he's, he's right i mean yeah, and i'm sure it was way words. less i'm sure it was way less suffocating overprotective and managed when he said that you know yes the neuro neuroses are off the charts now, but right. oh, it also, you know, it also kind of sets something off in me because, uh, you know, th there's a, an environmentalist message in his movies, but it is not a Japanese environmentalist message is very different from an American one. Because the American yeah. environmentalist message promotes the suffocating, overprotective, managed society. Uh, yes. The American environmentalist. Nanny state. Yeah, it's a nanny state. It's 
Yeah. It, it always starts with give us more of your money, all of it. It may be you can drive a vehicle that you can, that we can turn off at any time that is not able to go very far. You will live in small, teeny tiny accommodations and you will eat a diet that is good for the planet. And it all, it's all, it'll all come from some source that makes all the money off of it. But you will be very yeah. managed. You will surrender more of your money to uh, this managerial system that will keep you in a small managed area that we will refer to as a community, but does not resemble a community. And um, yeah, you'll have, you'll have your your streaming and your porn and whatever else you want. You know, right? Stay in your cubicle. Stay in your home. Your and, apartment and, and stay priced over the rent is high. Yes, and uh, eat ramen noodles. You will be as managed and suffocated and protected as possible. But in a Miyazaki film, you know, I think a lot of people see the environmentalist message and go, oh, that's they can they'll confuse the two. They'll go, well, that's a, you know, it must be that type of thing. But I think the Japanese have a more holistic look at environmental stuff. They have their big. It's more like conservation. It's conservationist. I don't even think it's environmentalist. Yeah, I think environmentalist is the wrong word because environmentalism yeah. to me is synonymous with revolutionary. It's synonymous yes. with uh, utopian. Uh, you know, it's synonymous with violent. And frankly, it's kind of violence in a way. It's coercive, you know. Um, yes. And uh, I, I would say I think the word I think that you're right. The word cons- conservationist is a better term. Mm-hmm um yeah. for what you see in these movies uh, right it's like um as i mean just to, as an aside we recently now in colorado just about everywhere we have a 10 cent uh fee for every plastic bag used in a store and i looked into it something like six cents of that goes to the government yes four cents they can't even tell you where it's going just go it's just another way to tax you get money out of you, you yeah know? they tried that in dallas and it it was such a it became like a source of unrest in grocery stores like you know i hope be, it does here but there would be dudes like with this is texas so who knows but i remember there were there were guys with like plastic bags covering their bodies that were like take one you know <laughs> outside you know they would, <laughs> there were there were people doing like kind of irl activism over it and you know People would be checking out and they'd be like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have 10 cents on me. Can you just, you know, like, you know, it would just, it would just become a big, it just, it made checking out. Into the Chris Rocker thing. Can you, can you break a five? Yeah. <laughs> can, yeah. Can you break a hundred? It just, it, it made <laughs> checking out. Bags. <laughs> it made checking out take longer. And I think honestly, that was where it became really contentious was because it made checking out. It made people wait in line longer. Um, it it is really annoying and um the uh the funny thing is, is i heard when california did it i went out there for dragon fest and to hang out with uh lu feng and and other people and and meet some cool people and uh at that time they had just in, installed the 10 cent tax per bag and uh the big hot rumor at the time uh was told to me by a source i trust he says because homeless people were using them as condoms So there's our 
everybody waits for me to say something shocking on every show and i've been slack in the last couple of years because i've been mr nice guy but i figure i gotta bring back the humor that everybody misses about this show uh, hunter's uh, looking at a way to remove this from the from the video but uh, this is what i was told i'm just grossed out it's all <laughs> oh Oh, they use them as condoms. <laughs> he needed the money. There, here's here's our next negative review. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This oh, is I an love open this. night night at the Catskills. <laughs> I didn't need. I don't need my movie podcast to be so blue. <laughs> I don't need Lenny Bruce on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Look at Lenny Bruce over here. Yeah, you know, saying uh, jaw dropping offensive stuff. Um. But so, uh, Warriors of the Wind, uh, how do you think this version compares to Nausicaa, the OG? I'll version? tell you this. I've only watched them, well, I watch it once in Japanese. I don't like to watch anime in Japanese with subtitles, even though I'm doing it right now with the first Lupin series, which is on uh, Amazon Freebie. I'll, I'll and... always go dub. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I like use... dubbing. I, I like dubbing. Me too. You know, no it's problem. Just, it. It's easier. And it's it, uh, easier to watch. And also, like, my knowledge of the Japanese language and everything. It's funny when I'm watching something subtitled and the guy they got to dub Lupin, who a character I would assume is like 30 years old, sounds like he's 80. <laughs> it's like, what? It's like, so Tony Oliveri, I think that's his name with his Fujiko. That somehow that makes more sense. It, to it, me, it matches. Like, a, like when I hear him, I go, that's what Lupin sounds uh, like. Yeah. 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 It just, it looks in English, it suits the character better. Maybe in Japanese, for Japanese speakers, that's more suitable. But um, the Warriors of the Wind dub is far superior to the, uh, the like the the Disney dub, because one problem with the Disney dubs, instead of getting just nothing but voice professionals, they get real oh, stars. They, they get, get like, names, familiar names, and so when you hear their voice, it's kind of like ah, like there's one Porco Rossi, I think that's the name of it, with the pig that like flies planes. Yeah, Porco Rossi. Michael yeah. Keaton. Yeah, Michael Keaton voices him. And yeah. so it's distracting when you hear it because you just think Beetlejuice or Batman or uh, Mr. Mom. And When I saw yeah. that, I wouldn't have known that was Michael Keaton if you hadn't told me. You really? Know, just, yeah, the way he plays it is so toned down. Like, I just wouldn't have known. Um, you know. You might not as be as orally sensitive to, like, voices like I am. May I'm real sensitive to it. I am. May maybe Like, not. I can hear stuff in music. I can tell when something is a re-recording or whatever. It's just... It's crazy. Like there's some some of those Disney actors. Sometimes I don't know who it is, but sometimes I do. Like yeah. you know, in Nausicaa, the the uh, that one character, I'm like, that's Patrick Stewart. You know, boom, right? Because he's Patrick Stewart. You know, um, that's Timothy Dalton. <laughs> yes, but uh, but you never uh, say that's George Lazenby, though. You yeah, know, that's my favorite part. Um. But uh, yeah, I think the I like the voices in Warriors of the Wind. I'm not. I think the script is a lot more simplified. Um, you don't yeah. get as much of that lore and kind of richness. Um, especially with it's a Shogun Assassin effect. It's yeah. like Shogun Assassin. That's a simplified baby card. Yes. for people who don't want to learn about Japanese culture, and it works if you're watching. And, I and you don't know I, the movies. Yeah, and, and I think if I watch it, you know, I'm going to go for the full one. Um, but mm -hmm. this one was cool to watch uh, because, you know, that's how a lot of people, that's how most people over here were introduced to this movie. Um, right. So I felt like you got a lot less of the giant stuff in there. Like it felt like the giant just sort of 
they were like, well, there's the giants. They destroyed the earth one day. Oh, we've got this one in here. Probably because you have these lingering tracking shot. I mean, in the original version, yeah. it's kind of the camera, you know, just meditates on the giant. Yeah, they spend whatever. a lot of time building up these world destroying giants. Uh, so because it's I, meant to be seen in a theater, like a dome theater yeah. in Tokyo, with yeah. like all the, you know, twenty year olds are like, well, you know, in amazement at it, and yet this is made for a market where kids are watching it on twenty inch TVs, so the yeah, so the parents can go drink some vodka or something. And I, I, I just didn't think it hit as hard when that melting nightmare monster comes crawling out, you know, and yeah. firing. The visual impact isn't really there. Yeah. Um, but uh but it was a cool way to watch it uh and you know as far as anime um import jobs go that alter the source material it is not at all an egregious example i don't think like no um it doesn't take mat i mean it simplifies it but it doesn't take any crazy liberties with it it doesn't uh it doesn't like it doesn't just completely alter it it's just sort of a simpler version aimed at a younger audience and yeah i think that's fine uh i don't i see nothing wrong with it yeah it's you know, not it, it, it i don't helped. think it's it's not a crime against humanity you know yeah um, it, it helped it helped get that stuff over here it's yeah. like kids watching this in the 80s and kids watching dragon ball z altered or not i mean it helps every bit helps i mean the funny thing is anime is so mainstream accepted now i mean on pluto tv you can watch a 24-hour loop in the third channel yeah was that even conceivable 10 years ago not even well, a year ago did and, i think i'd see think, something like that and think about major hollywood studios are funding anime like netflix is yeah. putting out that like i hear that new cyberpunk anime series on netflix i hear it's awesome um oh, i'll check it out yeah i hear it's really good um uh, I one of my friends from high school actually texted me and he goes, "Have you seen Cyberpunk Edge Runners yet?" And I said, "No." And he goes, "Watch it." He goes, "It made me feel like I was 17 again watching this stuff." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Wow!" I was like, "That's high praise." Um, I know wow. people. I I remember the early days of Hulu when it was really worth getting. Mm -hmm. Uh, they had a lot of 70s anime from like the original Fist of the North Star. Wow. Uh, anime series, not the movie. The TV series is said to be superior um yeah they they had the masoyama anime tv show uh karate fist or i forget what it's called um they had a lot of stuff and uh, uh and then like almost overnight hulu became worthless like, yeah suddenly it was just handmaid's tale and you could watch wrestling you know it's just nothing there was no, no lots old of, tv shows no lots old of, like, anime nothing lots of like kind of daytime programming on there like you know kind of abc daytime tier true crime stuff not not even true. yeah it's, true... It's, it's all for women now it's there's nothing for men you know there's no gun smoke right. there's no have gun will travel there's no um old westerns old anime nothing there's nothing like that there's no kung fu films it's really weird it's uh, just worthless yeah uh but but so uh but yeah i i think you're right i think this this version of it did help anime get the foothold here and you know I, I think, uh, you know, there's the story about when uh, Princess Mononoke was coming out. Uh, mm -hmm. Harvey Weinstein got the rights to it. And, of course, Harvey's going to want to do stuff to it. You know, that's what he does. 
and yeah. Miyazaki put his creative stamp on it. Yeah. Yes, Miyazaki mailed him a samurai sword with a word with just a message that said "No cuts." <laughs> and uh, and he uh, apparently Harvey went okay and just released it. But I think that mm-hmm. was at a time when an audience was more willing to watch that movie as it was, you know, just right. And it, it, it was, I saw it at an art house theater in, in uh, Boston at the Coolidge corner. And um, that was the audience. There was no kids there that like yeah. kids weren't going to see this thing. And it wasn't marketed to them at all. So it was more of a, Hey, we're ready to watch this stuff at the art house theater. You know, the funny thing is like last summer, I took my kid to see the cat returns for like one of those fathom event screenings. And, and then I said, did we watch this on HBO Max like two years ago? And Kato was like, yeah, yeah, we did. I was like, oh, well, it's cool to see on the big screen. And they are a different experience on the big screen. I do recommend, I mean, gosh, all these theaters have Miyazaki festivals every year where you can see these films revived, yeah. you know, for one or two days. Well, And you have in, a choice between dubbed or subtitled. I go I for the saw, dub, but. I, I was like a freshman in high school when Mononoke came out and I saw it in the theater and mm-hmm. you know i was blown away by because i was just getting into anime and seeing that movie on the big screen it was like you know oh my gosh i had just seen yeah. the greatest movie ever you know um it might have been the first anime i saw on the big screen i can't remember maybe i saw akira like at a art house theater but i think princess mononeke was probably the first maybe um but uh so what would you give what would you give the original Nausicaa and what would you give Warriors of the Wind? It's not one of my favorites. It is a Dune knockoff. It's not one of the strongest Miyazaki movies. It just he made way better movies. And mm-hmm. this isn't a knock on him. It's just it's just how I feel about it. It doesn't excite me as much as the Lupin film he did or it's his um, second some movie of his other too. stuff like um uh what's the like Kiki's delivery service? I thought it was exceptional. Great. My neighbor Totoro has grown to be a favorite because my son would watch it Totoro you know, every month. That's a 10 out of 10. Totoro. Yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, it's great. It's it's funny for me because I was always so anti-anime because I found the fans real obnoxious in the 90s. But, you know, I kind of grew on me because the accessibility to it is so much better. Mm -hmm. And now that I have a kid that is getting into animation because of this stuff, you know, and Harryhausen and some of our other favorites, um, I'm more open to it. I enjoy it a lot more. And it's... um, it's it's better to see this stuff in high definition instead of like bootleg tapes and that's oh, yeah. that's how it kind of grew up. Oh yeah, I, or, I remember, or watching it with no translation that was common. Um, I remember getting, but uh, I would give Nausicaa uh, like uh, probably a seven, and I would give Warriors of the Wind is is a decent six. I don't, it doesn't offend me. I don't. The stuff isn't religion. It's not the, you know, it's not um, it's, it's not the Bible. It's not the Torah. You know, it's 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 nothing like that. Yeah, I'm I'm very close to you. I give Warriors of the Wind a six. I get I give Nausicaa an eight. I I really enjoy it. It is a Dune knockoff. Mm-hmm. It's his second movie. It's not his strongest, but I think even a weaker Miyazaki movie is very good. You know, like it's probably more enjoyable than watching either version of Dune. I haven't seen the new one, but uh, yeah, hundred percent. The Lynch one's okay. You know, I don't hate it. Yeah, no, I like the David Lynch one. Uh, I own it on DVD blu-ray and 4k so that should tell you, you well know? i was thinking it might have been preferable had frank herbert just sold the rights to a japanese like to toei and just mm-hmm. given us an, an anime version i think that yeah. would have worked better yeah it would have um yeah. but uh now let's switch gears to another new world anime that is totally uh 
I would say not remotely respectful of the source material, but not in a bad way. A real step in the puddle here. (laughs) Uh, Probably, you know, we talked about, you know, Nausicaa was pared down in Where's the Wind to be something more simple. With when New World got a hold of Angel's Egg in one of these big multi package deals, Angel's Mm -hmm. Egg, I don't, have you seen Angel's Egg, John? No, I've never seen it. It is not a movie you would watch and go, yeah, this is releasable, especially not in 1988. Like, <laughs> it would yeah. be like dropping, a, it would be like going to, uh, like, it would be like going to Japan and dropping in David Lynch's Eraserhead and say, add scenes, like, figure this out. <laughs> you know, it is yeah, a. Yeah, that cuts the scenes of King Ghidra walking through Tokyo or something. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's a, it is an art house movie that it's it's a blot test it is what's it about i don't know religion maybe it might be have something to do with uh i, I who knows you know it's it's a very strange movie but it was directed by mamoru oshi who's famous for ghost in the shell um yeah and it has artwork the art direction is by yoshitaka amano who did the artwork for the final fantasy video games and for vampire hunter d and um so it has his very distinct look uh but so uh when it came to uh the when it came to new world corman gave it to carl culpert uh who was then an unknown director but he went on to produce the robert e howard biopic uh the whole wide world um right and he did a lot of the kind of 90s allison he produced a lot of the 90s allison anders films like mi vida loca and gas food lodging and stuff like that uh but he directed a bunch of other movies too but um he's still active today but instead of just going right let's pare this down or make sense of it most anime films i I can't think of another example where they did this they shot live action footage to intersperse with it they added voiceover and new dialogue they completely redid it into uh, they made a completely new movie out of it. If you watch Angel's Egg, it, it it's a totally different movie. Uh, the way that movie starts and is paced. Uh, it's not like when you watch in the aftermath and you see the anime sequences, they're not in any sort of order. In fact, even the sequences are heavily altered. Uh, sound effects are taken out and changed. Um, you know, uh, the sequences are made shorter. Uh, I think they cut about half of the movie out and put in uh, live action sequences into it. So uh, you can watch this movie on YouTube. Uh, Arrow Video did put it out on Blu-ray. So what do you think of this? Uh, I've only seen the versions on YouTube. Yeah. And um, oh man, this is bad. <laughs> I wish I was watching um, Warriors of the Wasteland or some <laughs> some some Italian road warrior ripoff or something. Cause it, this reminds me of how, like I used to really hate it when new world pictures would, would sometimes get a hold of a, a Japanese or, or, or Asian film in general and slaughter it, you know? So um, I know everybody has, they love Godzilla 1985, but as we talked about on our show, I strongly prefer the Japanese version <laughs> and they should have just released a straight serious dub of that instead of, you know, shots of Raymond Burr, eating up the camera and you know eating up literally the set. yeah literally and <laughs> grabbing man ass you know um 
the uh but like okay a, a lot of people i will bring up seven blows of the dragon where uh corman got the rights to a shaw brothers movie called the water margin which is like absolutely the worst possible pick of the Shaw Brothers library to import over here. Why would you choose that? Because the water margins like this massive ensemble epic martial arts movie. And it's it's a second part of like a trilogy or it's yeah. the first part of a trilogy. And it's a huge cast and it's all these characters that the Chinese know who they are, but no American's going to know. They want to see some chopsaki. They want some violence, you know? Yeah. And it's like, and you pick this film when, there were so many other movies Shaw Brothers had at the time that Corman could have picked and gotten a better release out of. It would have been more. I, I don't. I can't figure that guy out. I think he stumbles into things by luck. Really, I, I sort it's of like, I don't wonder think he's if the genius he's made out to be. I wonder if he just gets a good deal and he just looks at it and goes, "Okay, there's some fighting in it. Figure it out." You know, <laughs> like yeah, that's what he did. He and they had like a sex scene added to the film, and it was cut to eighty minutes, and um, it was just an odd pick and. Uh, Chris Poggioli believed that it was because there was this actress who was appearing in Shaw Brothers films and she was also appearing in Hollywood productions. A um, Chinese actress, forget her name right now, but he said that he thinks she talked Corman into picking that because she was familiar with the story and she could she could help supervise the dubbing and get an extra gig out of that. And it would be easy for her because she knew the story and she brought in James Hong and and and. Uh, you know, did the did the uh, the Hollywood dub on it? That that one is uniquely dubbed in Hollywood. So uh, as opposed to Hong Kong, which is most of the Shaw Brothers films, except for like Inframan, are uh, are dubbed elsewhere. But um, it's I, I think that's what it was. But it was a weird pick. And Corman has a weird history. And the more I read about him, I'm starting to think he lucked into stuff more than being a genius. Uh, mm -hmm. Charles Grodin had a very negative experience working with him, and uh, in one of his books, he just trashes him. So absolutely a horrible human being to work with. And then um, a story recently came out. I was in conversation with Richard Juice on Twitter. Uh, I do recommend him as a follow. Uh, he said that John Carpenter used to go around saying that uh, these young filmmakers that got into a deal with Corman, it was a bad deal. And like apparently he had walked away from a Corman offer because what it was was Corman would put up half the money, but then that filmmaker had to come up with the other half for the budget. Mm. So like Martin Scorsese probably had to dig up have money from his family to to finance box Carbertha, which is, it sounds crazy but if you think about it it makes sense because paul bartell could not get corman to finance eating raul corman's like i'll put up half the budget you come up with the other half you know it was just like and bartell didn't have the type of money and he made some of corman's most successful movies and that's how he got treated so he got different financing it got released independently by another studio and it's one of the most respected cult movies of the 20th century and Corman had a chance to put his name on it and money and didn't, you know, just because he's a cheapskate. So if, if this business model of his makes more sense now, because, OK, like yeah. the narrative is, you know, the studio system was falling apart. There were these new things called film schools. There were these kids coming yeah. out of these new film schools who were ready to make money. Corman could hire them for cheap. Well. Right. If you are going to a film school, you come from a little bit of money where you're there's something not not that college was not as expensive back then as it is now. But um, yeah, but these were not, you know, just people off the street. He pro mm -hmm. Corman might have seen that would be interesting. I mean, we'll have to look more into this. 
but maybe he saw these guys as marks, you know, like, yes, I can put up yes. just a little bit. They put up the rest. I keep the profits and they, they get to make their little movie. It's kind of like one of these scammy, uh, mm-hmm. uh, entry level business things where you're paying to work for me. Um, uh, yeah, that would be interesting if he was just, you know, okay. You know, if you're like, you know, I know Peter Bogdanovich wasn't rich, but, um, you know, he was doing stuff for Corman. Uh, but, you know, Demi or Coppola or whoever, you've got to one, maybe that'd be, that's got to, we got to look into that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Like, like when Bogdanovich was working with Corman, it was in the sixties and I think they were still working for AIP. And, okay. and so, and Corman was still getting contracts for major studios, you know, but he would run scams. Like he would, CBS would give him money for Piranha as long as he shot a TV version they could air on the CBS late movie. So he gets two million from CBS to like, or a million to finance Piranha. Uh, he pockets, let's say he pockets five hundred grand, and then he the five hundred grand is what Joe Dante has to work with for the movie. That's the type of scam he ran, yeah. you know. And it was, and Roden was like, yeah, he tried to trick me because I bought an air conditioning system for a studio set. He didn't have air conditioning, and we had kids in there and everything, and uh, you know, and they're sweating. Everybody's just burning up in this cheap studio he tries to corman's trying to move the air conditioning system to another stage and it was like oh thank you for buying us an air conditioning system you know he's, he's an absolute scumbag really hmm. yeah he always talks about what a rebel he is and he's all this he's in all left-wing art and all this he's worth like 90 million dollars yeah and the cheap son of a bitch he gets people to uh work for on his dumb sharknado movies or I don't know, plum ant versus the giant squid or whatever the hell he does for this crap. He does for sci-fi channel that shot in like a week at some Mexican hotel. He just works out a deal with the hotels. that will call up Eric Roberts and say, I can't pay you, but I can give you and your wife a one week vacation at this Mexican resort. You know, it's just like, it's just weird, scummy stuff. Yeah. It's just strange to me. And he's God knows how much money he's making off these dumb things. Selling oh, yeah. sci-fi. He's, he's the one who's winning. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it would be interesting to see if it wasn't just a a scam to see like to get kids' first movie made out of school, right? Um, but uh, so what did you think of the anime sections of in the aftermath? Probably have to see it in a better print to appreciate it. You can watch angels. Very, the YouTube print is very faded and stretched yeah. and doesn't really look good. So it's you... hard to say. It's just you know it just looked weird it was probably a very artsy obviously very artsy anime mm-hmm. in japan or, or whatever and it's been reduced to like these weird bridging scenes or whatever for these really awkward live action scenes, which are which are all shot at the same quarry where they shot nemesis and terminator 2 <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's which like I maybe looked, albert pune should have done something with this i think i think they did shoot it there i think it's the same place Right. Well, if, if it, Albert Pune had shot it, it would have cut to these bodybuilding men and women with their veins popping out. Oh, yeah. Their, there would have been the the two dudes at the beginning, which, by the way, I think it's a bad idea to have your two, your main character wear a gas mask for the first portion of the film. Yeah. Like, you need to, the person needs to be a human being. Um, yeah, the audience needs to connect. Audience has to connect to it, and you know they put stuff in there like the dude attacks him with a harpoon, and the harpoon imagery is in the movie, and 
try to put these images oh. in there. But but if if Pune had directed it, uh, they would have been chased around by a model in a mini skirt with a desert eagle yeah. and sunglasses. Yeah, you know? and she bang, would have bang, had like bang, and cleavage, John Woo type out. stuff. You know? yeah. <laughs> and somebody the, would have done a spin kick on somebody. Yeah. You know, Olivier Gruner would show up and you know punch someone in the face and knock them through a wall yeah everybody would have been named after guitars or <laughs> and surfers or something yeah. Um, yeah hey dismiss his movies if you want but he had a voice yes he did it. albert pune mm-hmm. is an auteur just as much as coppola yes. just as much as anybody else um yeah. But yeah, I thought you would get a kick out of this one, even if you didn't like it, just because it's such a weird take on anime because it adds in, it tries to make sense out of it by putting in live action and uh, even like less sense, even taking like cutting out the female character and sticking her in like to certain scenes, they, they put her in the live action stuff um they didn't understand the source material at all that's basically how i i took it you know yeah i read the director said he just found it uh inco- incomprehensible and so um right. you know they just tried to string something together out of it uh uh but yeah like if you if you've seen this version and think you've seen some version of angel's egg you've you really haven't like the the, the final shot of like the bird in the egg and it starts to stir and wake up and that's like the end that's like at the beginning of the movie <laughs> you know like yeah. they're like just to give you an idea like when the giant sphere lands yeah. and with all those statues on it and you like you hear this deafening like tea kettle going off noise as steam comes out of it in the original one and that's totally gone you know um mm-hmm. but you know the girl's like my brother blah 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 <laughs> he's He's an an angel like me, you know. There's none of that in Angel's Egg. Yeah. Uh, but Angel's Egg is pretty short. It's about the same running time as this movie. Um, mm-hmm. they should have just done a straight a straight dub and then tried to get it on the art circuit somehow. Yeah, they should have. If, if Corman or the New World people were as innovative as they claim they've been in histories. Yeah, I think what they should have done was. Uh, I think what they should have done was uh, tried to see if they could get the the cult the night, midnight movie crowd because, you know, yeah. movies like El Topo go for the ultimate trip. Yeah, <laughs> just well, encourage like, the the stoners like heavy metal would do. Like they would revive that heavy metal cartoon movie every all the time in midnight movies. Yeah, I, I think this thing would have played well to the crowd that likes El Topo, Eraserhead, stuff like that because it's mm-hmm. they're very much that kind of movie. Um, yeah. It's a uh, very abstract, very lyrical, strange, scary. It's it runs the gamut. Uh, it's mysterious. Right. Um, I think it. I think it had a big influence on video games too. Uh, I know the the art director directs the art of one of the, or not directs the art, but is the artist behind one of the biggest RPG franchises. But if you look at games like Elden Ring, um, they have and or Bloodborne, which is from the same studio, they have a very similar aesthetic there's this similar kind of massiveness mysteriousness emptiness to a world um that i think is interesting and you know in the i think it comes through in the aftermath but what's funny is angel's eggs never really gotten a release over here Uh, in the aftermath is the only like a thing you that's the only like even on blu-ray it's the only 
real way it's available. If you I want to watch Anthracite, you have to go on YouTube. Yeah, I looked it up, and um, according to like one entry I read, probably Wikipedia, they said that Anchor Bay had announced an Angel's Egg DVD, but there seems to be a rights problem because of this uh, new world bastardization, because it it screwed up the domestic video rights. And I know a similar problem happened with um, Godzilla 1985, you know, which they altered. Mm-hmm. They, that's been a, a high Blu-ray release demand film. Nothing's happened. And it, it didn't even get a DVD release. Yeah. So, like, everybody's piecing together old VHS tapes and throwing those up on YouTube. But that's it. Yeah, no, I that that would make total sense um, that that's the reason we haven't got because i think arrow would have put out angel's egg if they could you know or something like that with it you know um yeah but um but again there seems to be sort of a fondness for these new world um kind of uh versions because you know arrow put out a blu-ray of it and there's a video essay where a guy talks in depth about this sort of this very specific era of anime coming out over here (laughs) Right, right. Well, it's their first experience with the genre, I think, in many cases, just because it was available at a video store. And, like, in my case, the first samurai film I saw was Shogun Assassin. Yeah. You know, just because it was on Cinemax in 1982, and I saw it at a way too young age, and it made an impression. So I was visually ready to start watching samurai movies. Widely available. You know, that was always easy to find, Shogun Assassin. Yeah. You know, you would have seen that before Seven Samurai or... Yojimbo yes, it just or... it was in every video store because it was very popular with the flea pit crowd, the B movie crowd, the violence movie crowd, you know, and it, it had a four a near four star rating and Leonard Malton's TV movies that helped too back then, you know. Well, uh, is there anything else you wanted to add about in the aftermath? Any thoughts or opinions? Um, thank God we don't do this stuff anymore. <laughs> this <laughs> slaughtering of of a work like that, like. Even lousy, half-assed German films get more respectful releases these days. You know, even uh, the Bollywood films now play local theaters uncut and complete. Uh, um, you know, and, and not a cinema I particularly care for, but uh, but it is interesting to see how pretty much all foreign product gets way more respect these days. Way it's more. like they don't assume people are stupid and close-minded anymore. That's good to see, and it may have a lot to do with the recent um, you'll notice there's been an explosion lately in releases of old my old Hong Kong favorites and from Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest. And that stuff is selling really well, is my understanding. And, you know, it's just like, I think the uh, the home video viewers, the people who watch the flicks and stuff, it's like they're not getting something out of what's in theaters. And they now have access to all this stuff in the purest, most uncut form. And that's a good thing. You know, pure, nothing wrong with it. Pure uncut cinema pure uncut yeah scene. like netflix straight ahead you you can get the latest bollywood thing korea god it's tons of korean stuff i mean you could call it korean flicks and it wouldn't be enough it wouldn't be a bad description for netflix yeah. There's so much which by the way i don't particularly care for it i'm not a big fan of korean cinema at least not yet you know i like old dragon lee movies or uh movies starring my friend bobby kim i don't uh you know most of the recent stuff i haven't really hasn't really moved me well, what would you give in the aftermath? Oh God, one. Are you kidding me? Come on. This was <laughs> this was painful to sit through, and I don't think it's just because it's a stretched version on YouTube. I can imagine my son sitting through this thing. Good lord, could you imagine the people who rented this thing and were just like, 
the hell did I rip my kid? <laughs> just like, what is this? What is this? No, uh, here's the it's thing. It's a Pink Floyd okay. album cover. Come to life. That's all it is. <laughs> I would give it a five. And the only reason I rated a little higher is because I wanted to see Angel's Egg for so long. Wanted to see it so bad. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this was the way I was able to watch it. And so for a while, I was like, oh, okay. So I got, I've got my Angel's. I got to see some of it and uh but when i finally watched angels egg i was like holy crap they like just totally got are like, you just trying to be the nicest reviewer on this show you always give the most generous ratings yeah i know like, i think you yeah i think you rated uh losing it twice what it was really worth you know it was just like oh yeah or maybe three times it's like uh but, but, but I did, you're I, like the nicest reviewer i didn't ever. i didn't want to hurt Stu's feelings you know <laughs> 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 he seemed very personally invested in that one, so I wanted to wanted wanted to make him happy. Yeah, or I didn't want to make him too upset. He identify you know? with Joe Spinell's character. That's what it was. <laughs> All right. Well, you got anything to plug, John? Uh no, nothing to uh to plug this week. Hopefully I have some fun announcements to make in the next few months. So I'm always working on stuff. And uh it, nine times out of ten the stuff ain't working out. But continue to try working on stuff so yeah yeah don't be a bug man and just like consume you know try to work on stuff yeah that's my encouragement to everybody and uh don't let the man get you down kids okay and i've got a few appearances that might be coming down the pipe so i'll keep y'all posted on those but uh should be should be cool if if they pan out um but in the meantime go get that death wish with paul talbot yes Um, this was the you know i was like i gotta get that one right when it comes out get that slip cover you know with the reversible all that you know so anyway well uh if there's nothing else john i'm gonna go ahead and say adios yeah peace out and now it's time for rue britannia with your foreign correspondent the nez In a move that will surprise nobody other than those who still believe and maintain that Joe Biden isn't on fentanyl, ex-Prime Minister Boris Johnson this week got into even more of a pickle when it transpired, courtesy of the Sunday Times, that he had effectively received an £82,000 loan from the chairman of the BBC, Richard Sharp. Funny indeed how it is that even after leaving office, people are still queuing up to provide Boris Johnson with loans. Naturally, Captain Underpants, as usual, still struggling for money and convincingly denied the allegations. Quote-unquote, I've never told a lie in 12 months, squawked the blonde bombshell. I never took a single penny. Ask the Ukrainians. I told them last year that the war would actually be over by January this year. Famous lost words. Now that his comeback tour has hit a buffer, it's now formally left to the Sunday Times to follow the story up and formally finish with just what little has actually left of his intended ambitions for a return. More bore bore than George Orr. Comedy and one of England's most prolific serial killers smashed his way into the record books this week by setting the domestic record for being housed in solitary confinement. 
69-year-old serial killer Robert Mosley, having been convicted of killing child abuser John Farrell in 1974, made penal history by being housed home alone for over 16,400 days. Putting up madly, Charles Bronson, or whatever on earth he's actually calling himself this week, doesn't even get close. Mosley, who spent 44 years in the glass petition cell for killing other serial killers behind bars, celebrated the malice of the mind demanding that the prison governor allows him access to a chess set and steal cattle and ceramic crockery. The prison governor politely declined. Quote unquote, I don't know why they all hate me, said the convicted brain-eating loon. I keep asking for canary for myself. Why can't they actually feel sorry for me after the war? He chirped. For the record, these self-pitiers will never be eligible for parole. Ever. Which is good news for Bobby in that he now automatically qualifies for his own reality TV show on ITV on a Saturday evening. Nice guy. Kills people. Culture. And a 19-year-old Muslim convert jihadi was convicted this week of practicing his religious obligation, namely threatening to cut people's heads off online. Not so much love and peace, but love and pieces. Matthew King, professional goat abuser, was also convicted of spying on police stations, spying on railway stations, spying on a magistrate's court, as well as also in army barracks. Hatred to no one indeed, evidently. Anyway, if convicted, King could spend up to 20 years in prison, which by extension means he'll be spending time in the prison showers with Big Bad Barry. Alan's cockball, I suppose. Meanwhile, in more multicultural shenanigans, another Muslim terrorist suspect was arrested this week after a bomb was found in James's hospital in Leeds. Now, the hospital wasn't named after Jimmy Savile, although on the other hand, he did actually do an awful lot of his dating there. Anyway, the usual protocol applied. Patients evacuated, bomb squad called in, name of suspect withheld. In short, the BBC are just missing another viewer. Further notes in passing, this season's run of Love Island was plunged into more crisis when one of the contestants was caught using cocaine on camera. Personally, it's not the contestants that actually need the cocaine, it's the viewers. Jacob Rees-Mogg gets his own show on GB News, it's called How I Had the Indignity of Meeting a Member of the Working Class. And finally, the Scottish government backs down over its decision to send a convicted transgender male rapist to a woman's prison, and instead decides to send him to a male prison regardless. Evidently, the Scottish Justice Minister actually had fewer balls than the convicted rapist himself. Pax.